Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Today we're going to start by answering a question from an old friend, Paul. How old? Would, would you say he's a vintage friend, Rick? Uh, well, you know what we need, Paul, to, hmm. to decide that? We need a vintage chart for our friends, just yes. like with wines. That's that, perfect. That would tell us. <laughs> they, uh, they, they wouldn't work very well. They actually don't work all that well for wine. I don't think they work for friends at all. Yeah, yeah no, they wouldn't. And our, we have enough problems keeping friends as it is. Uh, this friend, however, um, he asks about them. And this is, this is our old pal, Kevin Ostrowski. He's our loyal listener in Beaver, Pennsylvania. Beaver, Pennsylvania. Paul, I believe you even met Kevin. I have met Kevin. I believe I met Kevin at an American Wine Society conference, and he's a really nice guy. I cannot imagine why he likes so us. he listens to our show, and he introduced himself to you. That's right. That's a brave man as well. <laughs> That's wow. right. Well, he did it in front of other people, too. Oh. Kevin, thank, <laughs> thank, thank, you, thank you for your guts. Um, you know, he, well, so he's asking us about wine vintage charts, and what Kevin says is, who gets the job of constructing those, and how on earth they decide whether to hold or drink. So maybe Paul, we ought to explain exactly what those things are. And I think you have a small confession for our friend Kevin. Well, uh, a vintage chart is a little tiny piece of paper that theoretically you can carry around in your wallet, although these days most of them come in a double or a triple fold version because there's so much information on them. And it tells you, for example, that the Bordeaux's from 2011 are lighter and softer and should be consumed now, and the Bordeaux's of 2010 are a little more structured and a little more... Uh, uh, long-lived, and so you could sell her them for a few more years. And it basically gives you all this information back a couple of, couple of decades. Right, yeah, and, and, and predicts a couple of decades forward, too. Right? right, and my confession is that I'm actually the consultant for a couple of these that I help people with in different parts of the world. And, and tell Kevin how you actually come to the, your conclusions. I do not use the magic eight ball <laughs> well that's good that's good in fact um i call a bunch of my friends who are winemakers and i basically ask them a few questions when was the last time you had a bottle of this wine what did you think of this vintage how did the most recent vintage compare to previous and i just take all of their answers and i kind of average them off and say okay that's where we're going with this one so it's actually it actually takes me some time to compile all the information and all the rest my, my biggest concern is that in every case, you and I love the fact that wine is almost infinitely variable, and these vintage charts tends to tend to take, for example, all of Napa and say, right. in one year, was it a good year or a bad year? And eh, you can't do that. Right. Well, let's. I'm going to uh, finish Kevin's question, and then I want to. I want to go right back to what you're saying. Okay. Good. Because uh, Kevin says, "I'm sure the wait staff at restaurants already think I'm strange." Well, he he must tell them he listens to us. That's right. He tells them he listens uh, to us, we, and they're. We've told you before, Kevin. Don't <laughs> admit it. Um, and he says, uh, "But I could not imagine their comments if I were to whip out my pocket card before ordering wine and tell them, no, that wine should be held. Maybe I'll order it next year." So this is one of the many, you know. Things, it's, it's not the world's most convenient, even if it's an app form. But there is this larger point that you're starting to talk about. And even before you get to the, the chart itself, just even the, the concept of vintage is squishy. Well, it's, I'm going to go even further earlier than that because the, the restaurant only has one. Most restaurants only have current releases. Right. 
So Good point. So the fact that the wine would be delicious in 12 to 15 years does Kevin no good at all in a restaurant. Unless he's going to eat a lot of food and 15 years later he'll still be sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really more for people who have their own cellars, who want to know, who want to get a sense from winemakers what's going on with the wines that they're afraid to open. As we heard last week, the woman whose husband didn't want to open any of the wines because right. he's waiting for him to get better. Well, <laughs> the vintage chart would tell him, better stop waiting and better start drinking up. Well, um, but, but even within that, the idea that in one vintage, all wineries make the same wine, that's not true. Um, and so you do have variations. And so all vintage charts are, by definition, a generalization as to what happened. And as a result, you can always find exceptions. So you shouldn't ever just use the vintage chart as a way to decide what wine you're going to open. Yeah, I'm not sure if you should ever use it. I mean, the problem is that, for one, I mean, there's many problems. Like, as like you were saying, region or region is different. But even within a region, if it's east-facing versus west-facing and it got X amount of sun versus more wind, I mean, that's going to change the vintage. Right. And how they well, how they how they farmed it for example when in, they picked in it. sonoma county which has a wide range of growing conditions they might say red wines the vintage chart category might be red wines in sonoma county which can include cabernet pinot noir zinfandel and merlot and can include regions that are very cold up against the coast and quite warm in the alexander valley and the answer is well you get one answer for all of that that's right. kind of hard to do. Yeah, and you know, to take that, we've uh, this is one of the the, the the things that I you know you kind of really like about wine. We talk about how wine tells you something about history and people and what they did. And it's like the five main Bordeaux grapes, which is the Bordeaux region of France. They each of them ripens at a different time, and in essence, they also go well together. But they were planted most. Sp- at least the first reason was so that they would have at least one crop each year. Crop insurance, right? So, you know, so which crop was it a good vintage for? Right. And, 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 right. and it goes on and on. Plus right. there's this. There is who decides? Who decides it's good? I do. Okay. After you, who decides? I do. Well, actually you on that one. It's true. But I mean, you know, <laughs> but good is such a, a subjective term. Of course you know, we, it is. We talk about this like all the time. Do you like wines that are bigger and riper than one year might be better? If right. you like wines that are a little more structured, there is a, a group here headed by a couple of famous master sommeliers and some other folks called In Pursuit of Balance. And they're actually looking for wines that are made with less ripe grapes. Well, for them, a warm year that some people might love would consequently be a kind of crummy year. Like some of the recent years, right? We're talking about we've got these really great years recently and... But for them, it's, that's not a good thing. That's right. So it's it's hard to know. And yeah. then there's the problem too that there have been vintages that just sort of get misread because because wine is unpredictable. But there's years, and and I think of the year 1997 when I was four. That <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a year that was sort of at the time uh, really considered one of going to be one of the great years in California. But as it turns out, it didn't age well. And the year kind after of, that, kind of like you, Rick. It's true. I'm. I've lost all. I've lost all my punch. <laughs> but yeah. but the next year, '98 was, which was sort of criticized as maybe not being the perfect year, is a year that still ages. You can still find some '98s that drink terrifically. Yeah, it just depends. And and of course, the, the the other thing that that I think has affected this maybe more than anything else we've discussed so far is that improved farming techniques and improved. Right, right. It used to be in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that you could have 
vintage charts that would range on a scale, let's say, of one being a disaster and 10 being perfect, you would have within a single decade, you would have vintages that would range from two to 10. These days, the ranges are sort of in the seven to 10 range. You don't really have a horrible vintages because winemakers and grape growers have learned that when the weather doesn't get ripe, you reduce crop, you use different farming techniques, you still get the grapes fairly ripe. Winemakers take those wines into the winery and make wines that are balanced for the fruit they right. get. You just get Right. There, there is less variation to begin with. And, you know, what? If certainly if somebody reads a lot about wine at any, at any level, they're going to hear about a really bad vintage in, in Italy or a really bad vintage in Spain. But it's not that the, that the grapes are just lousy. It's that they have hail or storms that reduce sure. the crop size. So it's much more about the size of the crop than it is about the quality of the wine that's coming out yeah. of it, what's left of, course, of that crop. Of course, with climate change, we may see weirder and weirder weather. Almost certainly we will, and, and that may continue to be a factor. But to Might me, explain the mermaids I saw in the vineyards. Right, to me, to me the, the issue that, that overreaches all of this is the only people who should really be paying attention to vintage charts are people who are buying wines. For a long term. Very expensive right. wines for long-term investments or long-term drinking. And somehow, I don't think those people are listening to us, Rick. Probably not, unless it's Kevin. And Kevin, if you are, let us know when you're opening the good stuff. We'll be there. <laughs> we'll be there. But don't, but don't worry about it for dinner. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you'll be, you'll be fine. And don't actually, we might argue, don't listen to us for dinner too, because that sometimes ruins appetites. But that's another issue. All right, you are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are about to take some questions. If you'd like to ask us a question and you don't happen to be on our website, you can go there at rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. If you are on your website, why haven't you asked us a question? Probably because you have better things to do. Probably because they know more than we do. Yes. No, that's, <laughs> that is entirely likely as well. All right. Our first question comes from Cindy Markham in Sacramento. We've had a whole lot of Sacramento questions, which is, makes some sense since I live in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. um, and in any case, this one comes from Cindy Markham in Sacramento. and She says, when I'm buying wine... One of my starting points is I'm looking for a screw cap. It's just easier. Do wineries know that there are a lot of people like me, or is there still a stigma? Um, there's still a stigma, and, and, and Cindy should get some points for this because she's absolutely right. It is easier. Now, there's something that most people find a great deal more romantic about pulling a cork on a nice bottle of wine when you're – the love of your life comes to dinner, you kind of want to pull that cork because that's the romantic way to open a classic old bottle of wine. But in terms of quality of seal, there doesn't seem, there, there's actually a real sort of angels on the head of a pin argument as right. to which does right. a better job, but they both are perfectly competent seals. And I, I'm going to vote a tiny bit for Cindy because when I teach wine classes and I have to open 40 bottles of wine, I always turn to my students and I say, who will help me open these wines? And I get a two volunteers and they come up and I say, you open these. And I take all the screw caps and I say, here, <laughs> yeah. I'll take care yeah. of these myself. And that's, that is absolutely <laughs> the way to go. And that is, it's true. And that is the thing, you know, I think that too, even if I got three bottles to open for a little demo of some sort, you know, right. if, if they're all screw caps, I'm just much happier. And it yep. is, and you're not you're not losing anything. And there's, it is, um, uh, you know, in some places, uh, New Zealand, it's not an issue. 
uh, no, all, although, all of, all of I the mean, whites. Having said all of this, I think about the wines in my cellar, and I probably have over a thousand bottles of wine in my cellar, and I would guess that I have fewer than ten that are in screw cap. So apparently, I am doing a show with the wine snob. <laughs> <laughs> all right, our next question comes from Monique in Windsor. She says, "Why are rosés so popular all of a sudden?" I'm not complaining, but it used to be really hard to find many. Now they're all over. What happened? Well, good things happen. Good things Actually, there are two things that happen, Monique. One of them is that um, a number of people, and, and I think we have to give a certain amount of credit here to some of our friends in the Master Sommelier organization who have been long-standing and enthusiastic proponents for rosés, and they've continued to tell people, drink more rosé, yeah, it tastes good. Well, let's expand that, too, because we kind of give a lot of grief to the, the psalms of the world sometimes, and, and it is in there, I think you're right, I think it's the master psalms and all the good psalms out there have been pushing rosés because they're, they're one, they're delicious, but they're great with food. They they're do pretty, so things. too. They are pretty. Yep. But there's another element to this, which is that a lot of wineries have learned that one of the best ways to make a deep, intensely rich, concentrated red wine is to crush all the fruit, crush the juice and the skins and mix that all together. And then instead of just leaving that in a tank, drain off about 15% of the juice so that the remaining juice gets extra skin, extra contact, extra extract. In essence, right. In essence, more flavor-causing stuff, which is the skins, versus less of the liquid. But it leaves and you with 15% of this wine that's left that's, over. That's and slightly that pink. It's mm-hmm. slightly pink. Yep. And those wineries have said, gee, Marty, what do you think we should do with this wine? Mm-hmm. And, well, there's, you know, and there's, a, there's a circularity to it in that um, they're not expensive to make. They're not expensive. They, they, they are not getting aged. They're not. You know, they're going right into a steel tank and right into a bottle. That's right. You can. You can. Whereas a red wine, you might harvest in 2012, barrel age for two years, and release in 2015 or 16. A rosé, you could harvest in 2012 in September, and it could be in the market by Christmas. Yeah. And then I think there's another factor, and this is a good thing. You know, Paul and I kind of always make fun of the cool kids. Um, but I think one of the thing that has ha- things that have happened in the wine world is that um, it's not necessarily the cool kids. I think it tends to be the younger wine drinker, drinkers, God bless them, hmm. have fallen for rosés because they taste good and because they don't come with – these these are folks that are – They're pretty. They're not, and they're not listening to stigma. They're not they're – not, you know, they, they They're not listening to it. us either. Well, can't, and <laughs> who can blame them? But, That's right. Uh, but so they're I – mean, you know, they're coming at them open-mindedly, and their friends like them, so they try them, and then, of course, yeah. they like them. And, of them course, and, the, and, the stigma for rosé comes from a generation ago when the only rosé you could buy was heavily sweet. Right. White Zin? Quite, well, even some, before some version White of Zin. That. You're right. Actually, before even before White that, right? Yeah, White Zin was actually a step up for and, some of those. So, and, and these were really very inexpensive wines, and people looked down on them simply because they were so cheap and so unattractive. And but I want to say for the record, I am not making fun of White Zin. I'm just okay. saying as a, su- a sweeter wine. Yeah. And and these these new wines are not so sweet. And the very best ones, there are some wonderful ones coming out of northern Spain, uh, southern France, a few people in California, although I've never believed that the best way to make rosé is to start by saying, let's make a really big, rich red wine and then turn what's left over into rosé. 
the best rosés in the world are made by people who start out by saying, let's make a really Well, there's good a lot rose. of that going on, too. In fact, I was uh, up in the foothills just the other day, and there's yep, a handful of folks out there that are doing that on purpose. Yep. They're making really good rosés. Yep. So, um, so, so lots of good reasons, but you, your read is absolutely correct. that it's, it's only in the last couple of years, and let us hope it continues. Yeah, because I got to tell you, I would guess that I drink rosé almost as much as I drink white, at least in a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a good little one, good big one. Um, and there you go. All right, that is it for questions for now. Uh, coming right up, we're going to have some eye-rollingly bad wine writing. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Now that's music that needs rosé to go with it. <laughs> that's some rosé kind of music, you think? It's cheerful, it's chirpy, it's, uh, it's out there. All right. Well, today, uh, we're not, for a, a bit of a change in our horrible wine writing, because there's so much out there, we're, we're not doing wine descriptions so much. It's just plain silliness in two different directions. Yep. The kind of silliness that, um, unfortunately, is way too easy to find. Uh, so, Paul, this one is from a friend of yours. Not really. Um, well, I, I'm well he's quite a well-known wine writer, and he's writing an article on Corsica, the island, the birthplace of Napoleon. And he is explaining that the wines of Corsica have suddenly become news people are paying attention to him and he starts off by saying admittedly that sudden popularity made me hesitant to visit see this is why ladies and gentlemen out there we hate wine writers as (laughs) not all of them of course as if to say this wine is popular therefore i will not visit the place nor will i write about it because it's popular and that would make me look as if i cared what other people think Well, it's like you like it, so then I don't because that would be uncool. My only coolness is to find things that you don't like and tell you why you should. And I think most people look at what we like and think that's not cool. You know, we hear from a lot of (laughs) listeners all the time about why don't they read reviews about all the wines they drink. Right. And this this is your answer because people like this think, well, if you like it, he can't be bothered. Right. But, right. but you would think of somebody that's doing their job and something is suddenly popular. Let's say it was a rosé and somebody like Monique asked a question. Don't you think it would be a journalist's job to actually find out why things are popular? Well, we use the analogy of a movie critic right. who refuses to watch any major releases because people will like those. A lot of people will go see those, so we certainly don't want to write a review of that movie. That sort of strikes me as being looking through the wrong end of the telescope. It but is, what the heck? Absolutely, absolutely. I'll, be, I'll bet you have something almost as silly, right? Almost. So this is. Uh, let me let me read this. This is um, this is. Uh, 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 well, this is one wine writer qu- quoting another wine writer. Yeah. Oh, but I. F- I that's right. I saw this. I yeah. like this. Yes. Right? Yes. You, here, you, here we you, go. Yeah. Okay. This is this is the second wine writer writing now. For the non-Italophones out among us, which means somebody who speaks Italian, but then for that would be too easy to say. For the non-Italophones among us, I'd like to add a voice to that chorus by sharing my ex- excerpted translation 
of a short post by Italian wine writer name removed, so we won't get sued. <laughs> one of the top wine, this is back to our, our second wine writer now, one of the top wine educators and writers working in Italy today and one of the technical tasters, I don't know what a technical taster is as opposed to a regular taster, but nonetheless, one of the technical tasters and intellectuals I admire most. Wow. Well, okay, this so better this, be good. Yeah. So what does this guy say who's so it, great? This is his translation. When uttered in the context of wine, he wrote on a blog that we removed the name so they don't sue us, natural is not the opposite of artificial as those who can't see the forest for the trees struggle to understand or worse, don't realize that they don't understand. Natural is the opposite of ideal. It is something that (laughs) – it gets worse. It is something that doesn't have a – mechanical form to which it can aspire or achieve by means of addition or subtraction. Later on, this wine writer goes on to say, make of it what you will. Well, yeah, because he didn't say anything. Well, he was said, gibberish. So just to be clear, Rick, natural is not the opposite of artificial when it's used as a court to wine. It, it's in the, the context opposite. of wine. When uttered. If you say it, is, it, it's different. But if you utter it, it means it doesn't This mean is this. utter nonsense. Yes. Because op- it says natural is the opposite of ideal. Yes. Which is, it's like say oranges are the opposite of wind. (laughs) Wow. But then it's it's something that doesn't have a canonical form to which it can aspire or achieve by means of addition or subtraction. Did Dada write about wine? Because if this is, this could be Dada writing here. You know, this is the kind of gibberish that our first wine writer would actually like because it's no way is it ever going to be popular. Natural is the opposite of ideals. In which case, Rick, I am totally and completely natural. (laughs) Well, that's that's true. There you go. And and you certainly are a form which no one will aspire (laughs) to. Make of it what you will. Make of it what you will. I love that because you're going to have to. Because <laughs> I got nothing for you. Yeah, there's no way you're going to. Somebody else is going to make. It. Okay. All right. Well, it's make of this what you will. But we are taking more questions. Good. And a reminder that once again, uh, come ask us a question at rickandpaulwine.com. That is our website. If you're not there, that's where we live. Ask us a question. Uh, these questions might be. They have two now. And they're sort of like about mystery wine kind of questions. One comes from Harry Wong in El Cerrito, which is an East Bay for somebody not in Northern California. Yep. I get a few of the emails from online wine websites. Why are almost all the wines they're pushing wines that I've never heard of? Because the wines one. he's heard of have sold out, and these are the wines that haven't sold out. Yeah, and often these are wines that are just made for this sort of situation. They're well, sometimes it's, it, I, I wouldn't say they were made for this situation, but sometimes the kinds of stores that do these special offers, what they do is they get a, a lot of wine. A, 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 you know, a, I don't mean a lot of wine. I mean a lot of wine. Help me out here. Uh, Rick. A, 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 a bunch, a, a shipment of wine. A shipment of wine. Thank you very much. And they put a different label on it so that nobody can tell it really came from that winery over there. But it's and it may be perfectly good, it may be not, but that winery doesn't want its label on it anymore, so they sold it to this other store at a discount, and the store puts their own label on it and sells it, and that's why our friend Harry has never heard of these brands. Right, and sometimes the um, the the sites themselves buy uh, juice that's made for them specifically yep. for this, and they name yep. it with various nature parts. It's like Mountain Creek Tree or you know bushy bushy should, grass vine we should get them to make a rick and paul wine bushy rick and paul wine it would be the opposite of natural it would be <laughs> it would, ideal it would be there you go. i think it would be thorny i think it would be it would 
Be thorny vine wine. That would be awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, so the the thing to know often is that they really, they're, they're probably, well, not necessarily overpriced, but they aren't going to be wines that you know. They're, you know, for those kinds of wines when you don't recognize them because they really are wines that you're never going to see again. They're like kind of one-shot wines. Right. And sometimes they're wineries that started, went out of business, liquidated their inventory. So, again, you're going to see it could be perfectly delicious wine when – um, a major wine retailer went out of business a few years ago. I went in and bought a whole bunch of wines, very inexpensively. Had a wonderful time doing it. A lot of them in things I'd never sure, heard of. Sure, you vulture. That's absolutely <laughs> right. That's absolutely right. And I was sitting next to the wine writer from the New York Times who was there. Just the real reason I was there. Yeah, all right. Um, here's this one is from Lynette in Placerville. Wine country. Wine country as well. How come almost every time there's a food and wine pairing advice from a sommelier in the paper? They suggest some wine I've never heard of and am pretty sure I can't find or afford. Doesn't anyone ever just say Zinfandel? Well, Lynette, if they just said Zinfandel, how would you know that they were a really highly trained sommelier who had passed all the exams? Exactly. Exactly. If they had said just Zinfandel, they could have been the guy who lives down the street from you in Placerville. They make good Zinfandel in Placerville. So if they are going to say a Zinfandel, which they probably wouldn't anyway because they're embarrassed. Because Zinfandel is one of those wines that they're they're too cool too often. Easy. It's too easy. It's, it's Zinfandel goes with a lot of foods, by the way. Uh, it really does. But And so they feel like they need to pick one wine. I've never, I've never understood this. I've never understood why you can't say take, you know, buy wines like this one. Well, sort of, but one. I also know, having written occasionally, as have you, for publications, that a lot of times the editors have told me, I want, I need something specific. If I just tell my writers to go out and buy, my readers to go out and buy something like this, they get upset and say, well, I don't know what's like that. Well, I'm saying, you say this, you say, get the Smith and Wesson. 38 Zinfandel <laughs> or <laughs> with a kick like a mule or something that comes from a region where the Zinfandel is going to have a kick like a mule right uh, yeah uh, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, but it's. But she's it asking beyond that. It's not just. It's just not the specific wine. It's the fact that they're really unusual. They're always wines. really unusual wines. And you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a show of coolness on their part. They well, think it is kind of. But I remember, you know, we occasionally do food and wine pairings here, and. I admit that we have, upon occasion, recommended a wine, and thought, and I thought later, you know, most people, most people wouldn't be able to find that wine. They, or let me put it another way: but we talk in styles. That we we do talk in styles, but even so, the fact that the net wine was an Italian wine, and we pronounced the wine in Italian, didn't tell people how to spell it. It would be very hard for them to go out and well, find that wine. I Paul, think. I blame you for that. Well, I've, I'll <laughs> take the hit for it. Yeah, so, no, that's a good point. It is a good point, but I still think that it, especially depending if it's somebody that they're talking to a psalm in the newspaper. Now, the psalm sometimes is talking about wines that their restaurant carries. Right. So, and that's that's at least okay. But I still that it so it it's the problem is sometimes they're being talked to by a food writer or by somebody. Either who wants to, or a wine writer who wants to pretend that they know the wine, or is too embarrassed to say what does that mean, and so the, there's no translation going on too. So it's partly the sommelier's fault and partly the writer's fault in that situation. But when the writer does it themselves, then they, there's there's no excuse. And, and it's just hard. I mean, right. you, you have what you're really doing is telling your readers that you probably can't taste this, you probably can't find this, and so in fact, I don't care very much about you. Yeah. Well. So we Lynette, care about our listeners, though. Lynette, we care about you, so we're just going to say <clears throat> Zinfandel goes with hamburgers, really. <laughs> just, in, just in case that's what you're having. All right, well, speaking of hamburgers, that would be us, and we're ending a <laughs> I show. I thought we were hot dogs. Yeah, well, there's that, too. 
that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer today was Jeff Sheckman. Thank you, Jess. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thanks to Napa Broadcasting for the studio use. And if you'd like to ask us a question, remember, you can find us at rickandpaulwine.com. If you're already there, then you know that. If you learned anything today, we hope it's you can't judge a book by its vintage chart. That is not what we said. No, you're right. It's don't take vintage charts too seriously. Uh, or really, the, or us. Or us, yeah. I think the book is just fine if you want to use a vintage chart. <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. Remember the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us.